Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 331. It's titled, Why Do We Work So Hard? 20 years ago, my family and I moved from Cincinnati to Idaho, and I started telecommuting. I first rented a small office in town because our children were small, and I thought that might work easier. But after a few years, we built a new home, and I established a home office. And that's how I've worked, out of my house, for the past 16 years when I haven't been traveling. My typical schedule when I was still an investment advisor was to work eight hours a day. I would break up my day into the before lunch section. I would typically take a nap. I would often exercise during the day, but I felt like I had to be at my desk because that's what I was paid for. When tracking my hours, and I looked at a timesheet I did back in 2011, I typically worked about 41 hours a week spent 5% of my time on email, about two hours per week, and only spent about 17% of my time on what Cal Newport describes as deep work. He defines deep work as professional activities performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that push our cognitive capabilities to their limit. We can call it deep work. We can call it creative work, but it was only about 17% of my time. The rest was just on stuff that needed to be done, including having meetings and just administrative stuff. When I left the investment advisory business nine years ago, I switched my schedule. I began to work five to six hours a day, about 25 to 30 hours per week, but it was way more productive. About 50% of my work time is deep work creative work. I do spend more time on email now, about three hours a week, 10 to 15% of the time, but I rarely take phone calls. So email is my primary way of communication, but that's my schedule. There's a routine there where on Mondays, I prep for a podcast and I do some writing. Tuesday, I record and edit the podcast. Wednesday, I release it and typically do some video work. Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays are sort of in flux. Either I'm doing some type of creative work, I do a plus episode for money for the rest of us, plus do some additional writing. There's a routine, but there's not necessarily an absolute set schedule. What's interesting, for the past year, much of the working world is following a similar work-at-home experiment. Prior to the pandemic, about 5% of U.S. workers worked from home. Now it's estimated to be about 50%. The average commute time in the U.S. prior to the pandemic was about 54 minutes. 
which means these workers have an increase of time. In aggregate, according to some work by three Stanford academics, there's 62 million additional minutes per day that have been saved because so many workers are not commuting. How are they spending that extra hour per day? Well, a survey of 10,000 workers found that about 35% of that hour was spent on their primary jobs. They just worked more. 8% a second job. Now, 27% was spent on household chores and childcare, and 30% on leisure, indoor and outdoor leisure activities, including exercise. So it was sort of an interesting split, about a third leisure, a third household chores, and a third to 40% actually working on either the primary job or a secondary job. How much do people work? A study by the International Labor Organization that's based on time use survey data where individuals track their time, and I've done this over different periods. Certainly, as an investment advisor, I tracked it for about a year and a half. I tracked all of my time, how I was spending it. So when they do these surveys, men work about seven hours a day, of which one and a half hours is unpaid care work, caring for loved ones at home or doing other chores at home. Women work on average seven and a half hours per day of which four and a half hours is unpaid care work. So women do three times as much unpaid care work than men. Now, these are not official work hours. This is based on time survey logs. The amount of work wasn't as high as I thought, about seven to eight hours a day. Yet even with those work hours and more workers at home, The pandemic has led to a lot of mental health issues. About 53% of executives say they face mental health issues at work since the global health crisis began. And about 45% of employees say they have experienced mental health issues. Part of it, I think, is the adjustment. And for families with young children, to help with schooling, to provide the daycare, and also to be doing their job at home, that definitely be stressful. Over the past two decades, I've thought a lot about how much time we spend working and why do we spend so much time working. In 1932, Bertrand Russell, he's a British philosopher, wrote an essay in Harper's titled In Praise of Idleness. And he was asking the same question. Why, why do we work so much? He wrote, it will be said that while a little leisure is pleasant, Men would not know how to fill their days if they had only four hours of work out of the 24. Insofar as this is true in the modern world, it is a condemnation of our civilization. It would not have been true at any earlier period. In that essay, Bertrand Russell pointed out that World War I proved his point. That with so many people involved in the war, producing munitions, engaged in spying, war propaganda, or working for government offices, that that was a lot of productive power engaged in this war, yet well-being was still high. The developed world still produced enough for people to live on, even though they were all distracted by this horrific war. And then he gave a fascinating example of a pin factory, where you have workers working eight hours a day making pins. And then there's a new invention to make more pins. And they can make twice as many pins. 
and there's already too many pins. And he says the sensible thing to do would be for all the pin manufacturers to just work four hours a day instead of eight, and then there would be enough pin production to meet demand. In his example, they don't do that. Everybody keeps working eight hours a day, producing twice as many pins as needed, and then ultimately it forces down prices and the least efficient pin manufacturers go bankrupt. So now we have half the pin workers working eight hours a day producing pins and the other half are unemployed because their company went bankrupt. Russell writes, can anything more insane be imagined? It's a simple example, but it gets to the point as we have become more productive in terms of producing goods and services, we're actually not working less. We're working more, producing more, producing different things if there's enough pins out there. He then points out that we kind of have the world topsy-turvy. And he gives the example of of serious-minded people say going to the movies is not a great habit. It's a sign of wastefulness or idleness, pure amusement. But he points out all the work that goes into producing a movie. If you go and you watch the credits to a movie, it's amazing how many people are involved in each film. Likewise, other activities that produce goods that we enjoy, the production's considered hard work and a good thing. But consuming it, that's considered frivolous. He writes, broadly speaking, it is held that getting money is good and spending money is bad. Seeing that they are two sides of one transaction, this is absurd. One might as well maintain that keys are good, but keyholes are bad. Whatever merit they may be in the production of goods must be entirely derived from the advantage to be attained in consuming them. One result is that we attach too little importance to enjoyment and simple happiness and that we do not judge production by the pleasure that it gives to the consumer. We produce things to meet our needs and to enjoy. But we actually need that time to enjoy them. And he's saying, maybe we're working too much to produce too much. When in fact, if we worked less, we would have more time for leisure. One of the phrases in the essay that jumped out at me was when he wrote, the modern man thinks that everything ought to be done for the sake of something else and never for its own sake. That idea of why are we doing something? Do we do it in order to get something else or are we doing it for its own sake? It's a theme that Aristotle covered extensively in Nicomachean Ethics. Celeste Headley, in her recent book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving, also hits that theme thinking about her own life. She writes, I consider the fact that I did things rarely for their own sake, but in service to my drive to constantly improve and be productive. Far too many of us have been lured into the cult of efficiency. We are driven, but we long ago lost sight of what we are driving toward. We judge our days based on how efficient they are, not how fulfilling. And we're always searching for the best method to do everything, the ultimate tool, the ultimate hack. We touched on this idea of efficiency and everything trying to be as productive as possible back in episode 323, where... I referred to the work of Roger Martin in his book, When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency, and how that drive for efficiency leads to certainly overwork, but also to disproportionate outcomes, income inequality. 
and less satisfaction because there is no slack in the system. Everything's optimized. Then there can be breakdown that can scatter through the entire system and lead to catastrophic events. Celeste Headley points out that 4,000 years ago in ancient Greece, the Athenians had 60 holidays a year. By the middle of the 4th century BC, there were nearly six months of official festive holidays. She points out work for the ancient Greeks was carried out in spurts. They'd have intense activity during as they planted or harvested crops, and then they would have periods of celebrations and feasts. Aristotle, in Nicomachean Ethics, distinguished between leisure and amusement. Amusement's more passive. We're just going to the football game, watching television. Aristotle writes, Indeed, it would be strange that amusement should be our end, that we should toil and moil all of our life long in order that we may amuse ourselves. For virtually every object we adopt is pursued as a means to something else, accepting happiness, which is the end in and of itself. To make amusement the object of our serious pursuits and our work seems foolish and childish to excess. Aristotle didn't think work was the thing that we pursue, the end-all and be-all of our existence. What is done for its own sake that brings the most happiness in his mind was intellectual activities, thinking, contemplating, reflecting, learning, growing. The leisure activities that Bertrand Russell points out in his essays. He writes, in a world where no one is compelled to work more than four hours a day, every person possessed of scientific curiosity will be able to indulge it, and every painter will be able to paint without starving, however excellent his pictures may be. He says young writers won't be forced to write what he calls sensational potboilers unless they wanted to. They would be able to spend time writing more monumental works. Individuals interested in economics or government would be able to study that and pursue that without feeling like it needed to be paid for. Medical men, he writes, will have time to learn about the progress of medicine. Teachers will not be exasperatedly struggling to teach by routine methods, but they'll be able to expand and learn other things and improve their teaching. What changed from the Greeks, where most workers were craftsmen, they did particular tasks, but they had a variety of tasks that they did. That changed when the Industrial Revolution came, when they had factories. And then workers would do the same task over and over and over again. And they would work incredible hours, 10, 12, 14 hours a day. Economist Rick Bookstaber writes, the Industrial Revolution ultimately increased prosperity, but for a time it made a wide swath of the populace worse off. The period of transition from the domestic to the factory system of industry and from the older to the new agriculture was of almost unrelieved misery for those who could not integrate into the new economy, whether due to the lack of capital or lack of physical or mental adaptability. Factories in the 19th century had children working 8, 10, 12 hours a day. The rise of labor unions was really to recover what ancestors worked four or five centuries ago. Basically, the idea was to fight for an eight-hour day. That's what the labor union movement initially was, because they were working so many hours. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. 
Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. And then as creative work came about, not just factory work, it's harder to measure knowledge work. There isn't a certain amount of output. That same model was adapted for office work. Alex Sujong Kimpang, in his book Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, pointed out that the modern office was conceptualized as a machine for rationalizing and organizing intellectual labor, and it copied the working hours of factory. But the model has been an, an imperfect fit in creative industries, as it's extremely hard to measure productivity and quality in creative and knowledge work. But, he continues, it is possible, especially in today's open office, to see who looks busy, who looks engaged, and who seems passionate about the work. As a result, service workers and professionals are rewarded not just for performing work, but also for performing busyness at work, looking like you're busy. What's interesting, as more workers that work from home this has been a struggle for some managers. How do they know their workers are working? They're insisting that they check in and make sure they're commenting on Slack or other things. What if this was done differently? Instead of demanding that workers look busy, we give them Slack. We give them 
the flexibility and the leeway to do their jobs, to be more creative at their jobs, as opposed to making sure and tracking with all kinds of technologies that exist to make sure they're doing their jobs. This idea of slack, of taking breaks, is something I have reflected a lot after reading Roger Martin's book, When More is Not Better, to build breaks into the system, both in terms of our, our daily work lives, but even at the company level, to build in more slack. Something that I have been doing for several years now is take eight weeks off where I just don't release a podcast or other content that week. It's about 15% of my time. It provides a break to reflect because one of the things that our brain needs, especially if you're in the creative field, is time for your subconscious to do the work, to, to mull over a problem, to come up with ideas. And creatives, authors, scientists, and others typically have structured their day, which is four hours or so of work a day, of deep work. And then they break it up. They, they'll take a nap. They would walk for hours to reflect. You need both. And our workday isn't really set up for that in the traditional office because they have to be at the desk. This could be done differently. Now, it, it's a challenge for managing business where there is some repetition, such as, let's say, a fast food restaurant. But I wonder, as some of those jobs become more automated, if there is a way around this. We've been trying to get somebody to work on our yard here in Tucson. It's actually been difficult to find somebody. And I went around to my neighbors and looked at who had the most kept up yard and found out who they used. And they used this guy named Henry. So I called Henry and Henry didn't want my business. He said, call him back after the new year to see if he's got a spot open. Usually after the new year, somebody dies or gets divorced. And I called him and he didn't call me back. He's got plenty of business. He controls his time. As we think about how we go about our work and ask, who's it for? What is this activity for? Why am I doing this? And what's it for? What's the purpose? Is it to look busy? Or is it deep work where we're producing something important? Do we have enough slack in our work schedule to actually let our subconscious to think about things? Are we pursuing leisure, learning new things, exploring? Or are we just passively being amused because we're so exhausted because we work so much? Maybe there's a different way to go about this. One of the most important things that has helped me in going about my work is to have a routine, to know that on Mondays I do this, Tuesdays I do that, to know that I have certain weeks off. But within that, Gustav Thibben writes in The Rhythms of Spiritual Life, measure repeats, rhythm renews. Natural cycles always allow for the unforeseeable, the margin for the unexpected. The seasons are like this. This natural seasons occur, but there's room for unexpected things. Having that routine provides a foundation for our, our work. We know this is what we do and this is when we do it. But within that, there's slack built in. But having that routine makes it easier. We know this is a time that we're creative. And if we're a writer, and many writers have said this, you just have to sit in the chair. And if nothing comes out, write something. This is your creative time. This is the time to do it. You don't wait for inspiration. You don't wait for the muse. This is the time to do it. It just can't be eight hours a day. So think about your work. 
Is there a way to structure it better where you have more control over your time, where you can build in more slack, where you can take a walk, where you can take a nap, where you can exercise, where you have deep focused time where there's no distractions, you got the phone off, you got the, the other notifications off, and you're able to focus. And then the other time spent on leisure, learning, but also obviously chores, helping your kids if you have that. This experiment we've been going through for the past year where half the workers are working at home, hopefully we take something from it and stop structuring our workday like it's still the 19th century. Stop this drive for efficiency because we feel good being efficient as opposed to asking ourselves, why are we doing this? What's it for? Who's it for? And if we have employees, think about what they're doing. Maybe there's a better way to do this where we're not tracking their busyness, but we're actually giving them the opportunity to contribute, to be creative, to have the time to reflect. So to ultimately... They come up with ideas to help our businesses grow and to be more productive. Give them that freedom, that creative freedom. Thierry Paquat writes in his book, The Art of the Siesta, confronted by the high-speed world, from the parking meter to the pizza delivery service, it is both desirable and possible to slow oneself down, to discover one's well-being and patience, to savor each moment as a hymn to the duration, a homage to life. That's episode 331. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, there's two ways I can help with that. First, consider signing up for my Insider's Guide email list. This is an email I send to listeners where I preview that week's podcast episode, include the show note links, and share an article on money, investing, and the economy, as well as other valuable content. It's free, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Second, if you would like some additional guidance in building and managing an institutional quality portfolio, Money for the Rest of Us Plus can help you with that. Money for the Rest of Us Plus gives you access to professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to help you stay on track, tune out the noise, and grow your wealth with confidence. There are model portfolio examples that will help jumpstart your investing. You can see how I'm investing and all the trades that I make. And you get access to video lessons that will help you step-by-step -step to create an investment portfolio that will help you achieve your financial goals. You can learn more about Money for the Rest of Us Plus at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific financial situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.